This is Words Matter from the DSR Network with Norm Ornstein. Lie after lie after lie. And Dr. Kavita Patel. We need to actually build out the reality of what will be the day-to-day. Some of us feel like we lived this when Donald Trump was president. We have no earthly idea what it will be like if Congress shifts. And I think that's something the public does not understand. Welcome to Words Matter. Each week, Norm Ornstein and I will talk about issues facing our country as we head into the midterms and what our leaders are saying and doing about them. We hope you like the show and we'd love to hear your feedback as we continue to shape it moving forward. If you have any comments, feel free to send us an email at podcasts at thedsrnetwork.com. That's podcasts, plural, at thedsrnetwork.com. Now on with the show. All right. So Norm and I wanted to really take the meat of the January 6th committee hearings, but in particular, kind of drawing out specific segments that have words that not only caught our attention, but really remind us of exactly why we kind of join forces to help work on this podcast, because the words do matter. And unfortunately, as we'll try to explore in today's podcast, the words that we are hearing, which might seem completely outliers in and of themselves, because on their surface, who wouldn't think that it's insane to think that Rudy Giuliani was drunk when he made comments and that all these officials who really swore and put their hands to books to take an oath to tell the truth at some point have now admitted that they were lying. It's unfortunately one of many tactics that precede Donald Trump. So we'll unpack that a little bit. But let's start by actually going through a segment from last week's televised January 6th committee hearing. Liz Cheney, who has turned out to be not only a breakout star in her own right for her stance during the hearings as well as before, but for also what she's going to face politically in her own future and understanding that future and still standing up for what she believes in. Here's a segment where she teases out the details about January 6th that will be released in future hearings. Today's hearing, Mr. Chairman, was very narrowly focused. And in the coming days, you will see the committee move on to President Trump's broader planning for January 6th, including his plan to corrupt the Department of Justice and his detailed planning with lawyer John Eastman to pressure the vice president, state legislatures, state officials, and others to overturn the election. Let me leave you today with one clip to preview what you will see in one of our hearings to come. This is the testimony of White House lawyer Eric Hirschman. John Eastman called Mr. Hirschman the day after January 6th, and here is how that conversation went. I said to him, are you out of your effing mind? I said, I said, I only want to hear two words coming out of your mouth for now on. Orderly transition. So, Norm, just react, if you will, to not just Liz Cheney and, and what we heard in that clip, but I also think that this speaks to some of the comments as listeners might be listening to this as the hearings have wrapped up in the middle of them, whenever they are listening, just your thoughts and how we can bring this into context for listeners to really understand why this affects them in their everyday lives, even though it feels so far removed. Although I will admit the viewership caught me off guard a little bit. I knew everyone in DC was watching that and myself included and you as well. But I was a little surprised in a good way that 20 million viewers were clocked in for at least the first hearing and that we've had high viewership for the subsequent hearings, even in the daytime. And, you know, one of the things that's uh, really troubled me, Kavita, is that 
the uh, committee would have loved to have held all of these hearings in prime time to get that larger audience. The networks basically bargained them down to two. I would hope as we get more and more revelations emerging that that will change. But the second thing that troubled me is that even as we look towards more hearings during the day, even uh, a number of PBS stations, public broadcasting stations around the country, have decided to put on children's programming instead of airing the hearings live. Public broadcasting. I was on the board of PBS for six years, and that word public mattered. Going back, actually, the first television I ever did really was commentary for PBS with Paul Duke on the Watergate hearings back in 1973. PBS covered them live. It actually made McNeil and Lair breakout stars. Uh, And now we're seeing, and it gets to your larger point, why should the public care? If the signals that are being sent are that the networks don't see this as a code blue time, it's not sending the right signal to that segment of the population that really needs to hear. Having said that, what the committee has done is amazing to me. I mean, I have been around Congress for more than 50 years. I've tried for decades to get them to change the basic format of hearings. Most hearings are disjointed and just do not work. It's partly the setup. You've got people up above on a dais looking down on witnesses. They aren't even looking at each other. You have five minutes of questions followed by five minutes of usually nonsense. And uh, a witness can basically filibuster for those five minutes. What they're doing here, not even using counsel, but their own incredibly impressive members, is to lay out this narrative of what happened. And while it started with January 6th itself, the violent insurrection, they're going back and showing this context and showing, in effect, that if you care at all about a political system built on representatives elected in fair elections and the orderly transfer of power, if there is nothing that defines a democracy more than the orderly transfer of power, and that you have a president who tried, as we have seen in so many dictatorships and would-be dictatorships, to manipulate the outcome and use violence to stay in power. If people can't grasp that that means that their very lives and the decisions made that affect their lives are being transformed, turning us into a kind of Hungary or even worse, a kind of Russia, then we have truly failed. And this committee is doing everything it can, I think, to make that vivid and clear. So two points. I, I, I'm glad you brought up the need for committee hearing reform. I, I, as you know, I was a staffer working on kind of Senate hearings and our function at the time minority, um, kind of for Ted Kennedy when we were in the minority and then in the majority. But the function of hearings was really to get across an agenda for the member and not even all the members of the committee. It was really for the chair and ranking. And that was exactly what we did. And there were some business hearings we had to conduct for 
authorizations and things like that. But to your point, you're spot on that this was a hearing in its true kind of sense of the word and what it was meant to do. And I actually don't think most Americans realize that because the hearings, most people don't watch hearings, let's be honest. And then on top of that, very rarely in prime time. And I think, uh, it, again, I'm pleased that there were 20 million people who at least uh, elected with their feet to watch and have some interest. The second point, kind of tying this, like why these words matter way beyond the beltway, why everybody should care, even though I know even close colleagues of mine who you and I kind of share in common have said, you know, nothing will come of this. And I said, one, I don't really believe that. And two, I think what's even more important is the framing you offered. But I'll take it further and say that basically Republicans, not just the Republicans we'd like to identify as, quote, outliers and the Trump and his, his MAGA crew, but really Republicans have now basically embraced a posture where you are not welcome to participate in self-government. You are not welcome to participate in our democratic system. And we've been here before. It's not just what Republicans have done to rewrite election laws in so many instances way before Donald Trump, but now they're willing to actually embrace kind of the big lie as we're calling it, even acknowledging as election lawyer Ben Ginsburg and others have said that the 2020 election was not close. However, they embrace this big lie to skew our very election system, to skew the, for the fact that anybody listening 18 years or older your right as a citizen in this country, as an American, is basically being dismantled. And if we think that this shouldn't cause you to be concerned and tune in whatever network to tune in and listen to this podcast, because we'll try to recap the events, think about the 19th century, think about the 20th century. In the 1890s, we had this occur when Black Republicans and white populists actually won an election in North Carolina. And 2,000 would constitute a militia by no other definition, armed white Democrats overthrew a government of black Republicans. And the Democrats had actually said that the election itself was fair, but that they disagreed with the outcomes and that it wasn't in their interests and that they refused to live under said government that the voters in said fair process had, had done. And if you want to think that's limited to the 19th century, look to LBJ, or, sorry, to JFK. We can talk about LBJ and other podcasts because he dealt with many segregationist issues. But then if you look at what had happened to President John Kennedy, when there was white backlash against Kennedy for racial integration, and the, a slogan that I pulled out, and uh, we can kind of, I'll, we'll do this on Twitter, where they actually had a movie marquee in Georgia. It's a stunning visual that said, see the Japs almost get Kennedy. And, and it was all just to constantly kind of put and gaslight John F. Kennedy. And so I do think that there is this kind of moment of reckoning where in all the noise, Norm, I, I can't help but listen to Liz Cheney and others who, who are literally patriots, true patriots. But I want people to understand why it affects everyone listening and why we should all shudder. Because those moments I highlighted in the 19th and 20th centuries, those are not moments we should be proud of. And those are unfortunately actually taking place before our eyes. And of course, we're now seeing in states uh, like Florida, Georgia, and many others, an attempt to make sure that people don't even know that history, write it out of the history books, sanitize it, the term that's particularly appropriate here, whitewash it. With that, this is something that we'll come back to again and again. But what the committee, I think, will do as they approach the end of their hearing process, what we are seeing 
even yesterday and we're seeing on a regular basis or even Tuesday on a regular basis is that the January 6th events and things leading up to them were a beta test. And 2024 is going to be the real moment and difficult one. We just saw in a county in New Mexico, county commissioners, and this is a Republican county that won't count their votes because they say the Dominion voting machines, one of the part of the big lie that was promoted actively by Tucker Carlson and others. And of course, Fox News is being sued by Dominion and they have a chance of prevailing here. These voting machines that have been tested over and over, even in this county in New Mexico, they were openly and in public tested and verified. And they're still saying, we're not going to count the results. We had in Republican primaries in Nevada, the Republican candidate for Secretary of State is a full-blown QAnon election denier. The Republican candidate for governor, who is Adam Laxalt, I knew his father, Paul Laxalt, who was a senator, actually Ronald Reagan's best friend, very conservative, but an honest guy. And the son, the apple fell far from the tree, is another election denier. It, we're seeing happening all over the country an attempt to flood these offices with people who will try to overturn election results again. And the public has to become aware of this. There is no issue more significant. If you want to look at what's going to happen to your well-being, we're going to end up with a the equivalent of a Hungarian-style dictatorship unless people are jolted into realizing what it means if they continue to elect these people. And it's even worse. I think we'll get into this uh, perhaps in our next clip. Uh, so maybe we can shift to that just because we can actually highlight what Pennsylvania gubernatorial candidate Doug Mastriano, someone who just keeps, uh, whether it's his previous tweets, his quotes prior to the election, or even just what he says in this clip about the 2020 election, that this is absolutely exactly what you said. And it's, it's not just prominent governor, governors around the country. As you mentioned, it's county, it's school boards. And by the way, brilliant playbook on behalf of you know, the big lie kind of endorsers, because if you do it in this way, it seems, seems incremental. And as you know, even an, quote, incremental flip of a county commissioner can have an incredible consequence downstream. So let's listen to this next clip. Governor Wolf didn't look into any allegations and blew them off. Secretary of State Bookfar blew off all the allegations of shenanigans. Our attorney general, you know, declared a winner before one vote was counted. And so the whole process has been corrupted. No, nobody cares to see if there was shenanigans, cheating, fraud, you know, disenfranchisement. And so we're going to rise up and say, look, constitutionally, we have the final say in who the electors are. Norm, just thinking through, we don't need to concentrate on our friend Doug Mastriano because there's so much there to unpack. But going through what you described, not just for 2024, midterms for 2022, and also I think some concerning statistics even out of California, where we've had kind of infighting supposedly amongst the Democratic crowd for progressives and and especially in law enforcement and what I would call moderate Democrats, which I think is a bit of a red herring, to be honest, but still paints a very dark picture for how just and anybody who is just trying to like 
get their, you know, weekly wages, trying to make ends meet, trying to kind of survive out of this pandemic in this pandemic. How do we translate some of what we're hearing and actually give people, housewives, parents around the country, a reason to knock on doors and get people out to vote? How how should we take some of these words, which truly seem like insanity to me and are often dismissed by many Democrats, but how do we resonate and get people to pay attention? And what is it that we need to do between now and 2024 to fortify any of our infrastructure to combat, I think, very specific efforts that have been successful to block voting in elections? So what, is, what are some of the things one person can do? And then what are the larger things we need to do, Norm, whether it's as a party or just a group of concerned citizens? So one of the things we've got to do, Kavita, is to change this sense that the public has of what the priorities are. The surveys tell us that overwhelmingly, the single largest factor people are turning to for their lives and what will be their political choices is inflation. And it's understandable. It's high. It's affecting people in their daily lives. It's particularly strong in two areas the gas at the pump and food, both of which have been shaped significantly by uh, the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine. It's uh, both the Russian disruption of oil and gas and the fact that Ukraine and Russia are among the most significant and crucial producers of grain and other kinds of foodstuffs. So all of that, and of course, we've seen supply chains disrupted, We have to get people to understand that important as this issue is, and of course the reality is it's not caused by the Biden administration or by our policies, it's a global phenomenon, but just telling people, hey, it's worse in other countries. It doesn't work. It's I've tried. It doesn't work. What has to happen here, I think. What do we do? Concerted and tough effort to note the danger not for a year or six months, but for decades of what happens if we let these crazy people take over. And it's not just what happens to people of color, because let's face it, the replacement theory, the racial element is a strong part of this. But it's understanding that if you lose your democracy, your ability to control your own lives is going to be taken away and you will ultimately suffer just as everybody else in the society does. And I think what Democrats need to do is toughen up and have the kinds of coordinated, concerted messages that Republicans have refined over many decades. What I would like to see is for Congress, looking towards the midterm elections, What would be the consequences of a Republican majority? Put on a series of ads that show clips of radical, crazy people like Jim Jordan, who would be possibly the Speaker of the House, certainly the chair of the Judiciary Committee on the Investigations Committee. Put up pictures and sound and words of Marjorie Taylor Greene who will be a significant player of all of these people and make them understand what the consequences would be for their lives. We were talking earlier before we started about the dangers of default. Most people don't even think about that. 
What if the country defaults, our economy collapses in ways that have reverberations for a very long period of time, and we're dealing with people who would be happy to see that occur? Take a look at the Senate. You know, we have several Democratic senators who are in difficult races. Cortez Masto in Nevada, Maggie Hassan in in New Hampshire, Raphael Warnock in Georgia. We know that in Georgia, the Republican candidate, Herschel Walker, is a serial liar, among other things, claimed that he had graduated with honors when he never did, that he had been in the FBI when he never was, that he railed against black fathers who abandoned their kids, and it turns out he has a child out of wedlock that he has not seen. And if people discount that and still vote that way, instead of somebody who has been a model of public service, Raphael Warnock, but pointing out what it would mean if you have a Ron Johnson running investigations, people who would be happy to turn over secrets to Russia. If we don't say that this is a, an existential threat to our way of life over and over again and make that the major theme, then we're going to reap the whirlwind. And Norm, it's not even, you know, Georgia, I'm glad you brought Georgia up because you're right, Raphael Warnock, I mean, for all Stacey Abrams, there's a history in Georgia where there's been kind of these kind of Democrats, Republicans, this shift from the Southern Democrat, which obviously in the last several decades has definitely changed its flavor and how the, who the candidates are and who can kind of safely get by, even in a very blue district. But look at like a safely Republican Georgia district where nine of the candidates questioned the 2020 result. The two that advanced in the primary, Jack Evans talked about, actually touted with Pride, his emphasis on overturning elections from 2020. And then a physician, Rich McCormick, also advanced in that primary, safely Republican, no chance of a Democrat winning, also touted and emphasized in his campaign that he refused to concede in a 2018 race that wasn't even close. So I had my aha moment when you were talking about Democrats kind of getting a more aggressive on messaging. I think the Post did a recent article, and I think you tweeted about this, but the kind of 100 GOP primary winners that have backed Trump's kind of false claims, we need like, we need a hundred, just like we do with all of things. I think the country needs to visualize, see who these people are and hear what is happening. But then they need, as you would describe a step further, we need to actually build out the reality of what will be the day to day. Some of us feel like we lived this when Donald Trump was president. We have no earthly idea what it will be like if Congress shifts. And I think that's something the public does not understand. You're right. To have that base of power in the House, even in the Senate, even with a slim majority in the Senate, it is devastating. And I, I just don't think that the public understands that to the degree that maybe this is where Hollywood and those of us who kind of work with media need to do a better job of painting that picture in a much more tactical way. If we think inflation at 8.6% is a problem, combine inflation with zero safety net to support unemployment, it's combined with zero response in a pandemic. The state of Florida has refused to buy vaccines for children because they disagree. They disagree with literally the world scientists on vaccines being effective in children or important in children. That will be our future state for the entire country. And that's not, I don't think that's sensationalism. That's reality. No. And I, I want uh, to see Joe Biden pick this up as well. And yeah, a, he has to. He has to. The American Rescue Plan cut child poverty in half. The Republicans blocked the continuation of the child tax credit. 
which has made millions of American families and their kids plunge back into poverty. Failure to extend the subsidies for the Affordable Care Act means that millions of working and middle-class Americans are going to have huge increases in their health insurance premiums, even as they struggle with inflation. The failure and refusal to provide money for protecting against the next pandemic means that more people will die unnecessarily and the society will be disrupted. And it's the Republican obstruction that's causing this. If that message is not given a sharp context, and if the president doesn't use his bully pulpit to make these points along with reinforcing the idea that this is democracy against autocracy, but it's also compassion for people who need assistance so that they can do what they're supposed to do in the society, provide for their families and work against a meanness that is happy to have people suffer because they think they can benefit politically from it. If you can't get that message across, here, these words matter and the images matter, then we're doomed. I worry that uh, because of the dynamics you're painting, I can actually trace whether it's food subsidies, nutrition, lunch support, even pre-pandemic. I know working in the Obama administration, we had to fight this fight constantly because as you know, pay-go rules, basically every step of the way, when you would talk about things that were related to defense and security, there was no limit on spending. We could even figure out ways to bypass pay-go rules. In fact, we would often joke in, inside the Senate that like, well, if I could just figure out how to attach this food subsidy to our you know, nuclear arms purchasing agreements, well, then I'd be fine because that's exactly what we would do. And, and, and actually, by the way, that's why many research initiatives out of frustration, out of the lack of increase in NIH funding had an entire flood of breast cancer advocates move to arguing and successfully getting research funding in the Department of Defense, thus, you know, kind of birthing DARPA for other initiatives, as you will. So it's important for people to understand kind of the games that get played way underneath the surface, so to speak, but that those have been games that have been put in place by Republicans and to which Democrats have often had to have a defensive posture. And we have to shift that dynamic. I have yet to see a suggestion, whether it's at the federal level or even at state levels, that kind of approach a similar gated function. You cannot allow for X amount of defense spending or Y amount of limitations or sunsets on government programs without also committing to, you know, A, B and C safety net. So it's why uh, it's been stunning to me, you know, the Affordable Care Act, for a lot of its flaws, was able to at least put into place so many things that were matrixed with private sector initiatives. And now thinking about the January 6th hearings, I, I keep thinking, how can we do this for voting rights? How can we do this for fair elections? Because for me, listening to the hearings, that's, that's my kind of aha moment. You know, it's, it, it gets me back to one of the larger frustrations that I've had with Democrats more generally, and that fits the theme of our podcast. Democrats have tended to believe that policies speak for themselves, but words matter and the messaging matters. And, you know, it, it's absolutely frustrating when you think, for example, you pass the American Rescue Plan, you get an infrastructure bill, a lot of good things flow from it, that you don't need to talk about what was in it and why it mattered to people draw the contrast through your messages with what the other side is for and what they're trying to do. And Republicans have understood 
how to use words. So when Build Back Better came up, it was Republicans basically able to say it's big government and more uh, spending and bigger deficits. The people who created all the deficits and debt are getting away with it. We didn't have the president, for example, really get out there and talk about why a child tax credit matters to people, why universal pre-K matters to people, why child care subsidies matter for jobs. And we let them seize the agenda, and that just can't go on. You know, Nora, it reminds me, we'll do this for a future episode just to get listeners uh, excited. It reminds me of the 2012, uh, was it Charlotte, North Carolina, Democratic National Convention, where Bill Clinton gave what I thought was a masterclass in explaining why Medicaid mattered. And it for, for those of us who don't breathe healthcare every day, not me or you, but this is the Democratic Convention. These are people you shouldn't have to convince Medicaid is important. Yet I think what he did was articulate why so much was on the line. And Obama was obviously going to get the nomination. But I think what Clinton used that opportunity on the stage was to basically say, not only is the White House at stake, but so many of our state initiatives, because these are all states that have not expanded Medicaid. And I think we need to remind people of that. And in a way, we'll bring some of those words, because what Bill Clinton did was take a program that, to be frank, most people don't understand that Democratic administrations do a very poor job explaining, and then tied it to exactly what you said. It's not just about, it's not just about, quote, providing a safety net, this actually kind of facilitates keeping premiums down, keeping costs down. For those of you that get it through your employer, here's why this all matters, keeping drug prices down. And I think he just did an incredible job. And we need to do that with everything. We need to do that with the cost of milk. We need to, you know, Austin Goolsby in the Obama administration would do the chalkboard, kind of like Katie Porter does with her whiteboard. We need to bring it back down to basics, including Here's how your vote, your one vote is being taken away from you. The one thing that you have that you kind of take for granted, here are all the hundreds of ways that this is getting dismantled in front of you. Perfect way to end at this point. And we want to thank everybody for joining us. Uh, It would really be helpful. We're relaunching this show. We would love to have you rate, uh, review, and of course, subscribe to this feed on your favorite podcast player. Share this episode with your friends on social media in any way you can. And if you liked it and want more of our conversation, become a member of the DSR Network. Get a bonus segment uh, coming up where we talk about what the media is saying about the January 6th hearing. Words Matter is a production of the DSR Network. The executive producer of the DSR Network is Chris Kotnor, and the producer of Words Matter is Grant Haver. The next episode of Words Matter will be in your podcast feeds on June 24th. See you then.